Hello and welcome to another episode of Gibraltar Stories. This week I'm taking you back to the Gibraltar International Literary Festival again. Last week, in case you missed it, I spoke to some of the local Gibraltarian writers who showcased their work at the festival. But this time the focus is on some of the visiting writers who came to The Rock to speak about their work. Each year, during the festival, there's a special event known as the Gibraltar Lecture. It's given in the grand surroundings of the Convent Ballroom. For those of you unfamiliar with Gibraltar, the Convent is the residence of His Excellency the Governor of Gibraltar, Her Majesty the Queen's representative here. This time, as in previous years, the introduction to the Gibraltar Lecture was given by the Chief Minister, our most senior politician, Fabian Bicardo. Who better to address you on these issues than a woman who has demonstrated for herself that there is no barrier that can hold her back? An author, an entrepreneur, she's somebody who I think is inspiring to those who believe, like I do, that women are probably one of the biggest disruptive factors that we could bring into the modern 21st century world in which we live if we want to make it better. Men in blue suits and, uh, and white shirts have had the run of this place for too long. They've had the run of Western parliamentary democracies for too long. For too long. Have we done it all right? No, for sure. Have we done it all wrong? Not entirely. But could things be better if we were balanced by the other half of the population that has brought us all up, that has nurtured us, that are the ones that we go to when we are at our weakest moment, when we are babies? Well, I think the answer is a resound yes. During the lecture, given by Paula Diana, an entrepreneur, writer and activist, we heard about the centuries-old conditioning and traditions which have continually held women back and projected men forwards into positions of power. From religious teachings which reinforce the theory that women should simply maintain a supporting role to their husbands, fathers or sons, to traditional practices around the world which restrict women's ability to participate fully in society, like the tradition of binding girls' feet in the Far East. Paula's book and lecture, entitled Saving the World, Women, the 21st Century's Factor for Change, wasn't a melancholy stocktake of all the woes against women, but a positive call to action for an underrepresented and underappreciated sector of society as a force for change in the world of business, politics and the environment. After the lecture, I asked her whether with so much history and tradition against women, isn't the dream of achieving true equality a huge mountain still to climb? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, of course, I was talking about uh, traditions that are against women. So I have nothing against, you know, traditions that are, uh, you know, brings equal opportunities to everyone. Uh, I really think that women that can write new traditions. So maybe Gibraltar can be also, you know, the light in this kind of uh, new sphere. You you highlighted a few pioneering women in in the world of politics. There's still quite few and far between, aren't they? Yeah, unfortunately, there's still quite few, especially the more, you know, uh, feminist ones, the more socialist ones that are the ones that I think are really making the change. But I'm positive because I can see that women understood the lesson that they have now to step up. You know, they have to go there inside the arena and uh, just try to be elected. You know, even if they fail, it's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong. And doing politics is good for them and for their communities. So I really hope, uh, again, in the new generations of women 
that they will just try their best to make their voices heard to everyone. Amongst the audience, there were quite a few young women from, from the local secondary school. Um, are you optimistic about the future? Yes, I'm 100% optimistic about the future because I can see, you know, I'm a mother, I have a daughter as well and a son. I can see how different they are. You know, they're very uh, pragmatic. Uh, they really want to learn uh, the cultures, but they also uh, interrogate themselves if something is right or not. And they have this uh, strong moral sense that we uh, they understand that women's rights are human rights for everyone. So we cannot deny them because of culture, you know, traditions of religion. And you also made a call out for, for women to stand up within their communities and, and get involved them, themselves. Exactly. This is so important for me. I think girls and women have to stand up and get involved everywhere, starting from, you know, their high school committee to the charities committees to the, you know, the public sector everywhere because I want to see them involved in every step of our society in order for them to make the change. And every little change will be a drop in the ocean and an ocean is made by drops. So we will change this ocean. Now for a complete change of direction and the biography of polymath, war reporter, author and ambassador John Buchan by his granddaughter Ursula Buchan. In Beyond the 39 Steps, A Life of John Buchan, Ursula charts her grandfather's life from his humble beginnings as the son of a Presbyterian minister on the west coast of Scotland via inner city Glasgow to becoming Governor-General of Canada and a firm friend of US President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Ursula is a journalist, social historian and gardener. An author of several books already, she decided it was time to take a look a little closer to home for her latest publication and delve into the amazing life led by her grandfather. I asked her what made her choose to embark on this very personal biography. I think it was really, I was rather concerned that his all his multifarious activities might get lost to public sight. Uh, it was a generation, it was 25 years or so since the last biography. And he was, every time I heard about him, it was in, in, in the context of Alfred Hitchcock's film of the 39 Steps. So I was concerned that, that, he, that his many activities might get um, obscured by that. And I, I was a social historian and, um, and I'd been a writer for many years. And so it seemed to me that it was, it was a project I could take on. I'm not sure I had any idea how difficult it was going to be or what hard work, but I'm very glad I did it. And was it difficult being a relative of his to kind of take a step back and, uh, and, and give an almost an impartial view? I was very aware from very early on how careful I had to be. Whether I've succeeded, I, d- I don't know. I mean, some reviewers, I mean, the reviewers have been very kind, but they not but, but they have said it's an affectionate biography. But I have tried to be as impartial as, as possible. But he was a remarkable man. You can't get, can't get away from that. Absolutely. His life story, as you've just told it to us, was absolutely remarkable. As the son of um, a Church of Scotland minister who started off life in, in the west coast of Scotland and then in the Gorbals in Glasgow, then ended up being moving in circles with the American presidents in Canada and, and being a war correspondent and all sorts. It's a really, truly remarkable life he led. It, it is. I don't know if we, we could do that sort of thing anymore, you know. Um, but 100 years ago, it seemed, it seemed possible if you had the energy and the drive and the brains and the education. I mean, he was... 
not expensively educated, but he was very well educated and and just had this remarkable energy. And despite the fact that he had serious stomach problems for most of his adult life, I mean, you know, that would that would have put me off for a start. Well, in addition to the fact he had such demanding jobs, but Indeed. still found the time to be such a prolific writer of novels, poetry, articles. You, you listed hundreds of, of pieces of work that he completed. It's quite remarkable. It, it absolutely is. I think um, one shouldn't underestimate the importance of his wife. And I think in those days people felt that, you know, wives... Um, there was a sort of division of labour and certainly his wife uh, dedicated her her life to making his life easy and agreeable and unbothered and and she did a very, very good job. I knew her actually, she didn't die till I was in my early 20s and I got to know her. Um, uh, She couldn't drive a car so once I learned to drive a car I used to go and visit her and... um, uh, She's an, she was an extraordinary survival from an earlier era. I mean, she sounded like a Victorian. Um, she used to call me darling. <laughs> but uh, um, but um, you could see what quality she had too and how important she had been for his success. You mentioned that um, his writing is still relevant to today's audience. It kind of speaks through the generations. I think that's right. I, th- I, I think that's right. Um, they're very moral books without sort of preaching. Um, I think we can, we can still learn from him how to live a, um, a good, optimistic and cheerful life. As is often the case at the Gibraltar Literary Festival, a number of the books being discussed have a strong connection to Gibraltar. The iconic rock of Gibraltar is at the heart of The Fault, a thriller written by Kitty Sewell. It tells the story of how a visionary structural engineer arrives in Gibraltar with the task of building a cantilevered shelf off the southeastern face of the rock, on which there are plans to construct a new housing project. It gives a detailed snapshot of life in Gibraltar for the three men characters, the engineer, his fiancée and his sister, who take up residence in an old apartment in Upper Town, which has a rather sad secret. Kitty, who's originally from Sweden, found herself staying in Gibraltar for a time because of her husband's job and was inspired by her time here to make it the setting for the fault. I caught up with her in the reception of the Elliot Hotel, which also features in the book, and you'll no doubt hear the comings and goings of a busy hotel in the background. I asked Kitty how she came to be in Gibraltar for the trip, which ended up becoming a fact-finding mission. I came with my husband, who was a doctor at the time, working at the hospital here. He had a locum, I think, for two months, and um, we ended up... uh, uh, staying in the Rock Hotel first and then here and of course the Rock Hotel is very it's very dramatic when you get up in the morning and you see the gulls and the and the rock and 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 already from the very start I knew this was going to be a setting for my next novel. How did you research because certainly at the beginning it's featuring the tunnels and the caves and and, and all the you know the caves and caverns that are inside the rock? Yeah well um I met a very nice guy called Tim Turner. He, has, um, he, he owned a, a local restaurant, but he knew everyone in town. So he introduced me to everybody I needed to know 
and I was taken into the tunnels. I was taken potholing down the caves. I was t- taking a tour through the jungle, and uh, you know everywhere. And uh, uh, the more the more uh, uh, I researched, the more people I got to know, and the more things I discovered about Gibraltar. It sounds like you might know more about Gibraltar than some people who live here. <laughs> well, it often happens like that, isn't it? When you have a mission to find out everything, then. Uh, and you go about it, and everything was new to me, so everything was fascinating. You know, the old town, it's just, you can walk for hours on these very narrow steps and lanes and see all these crumbling buildings. Some of them look amazing, or as if they were amazing once upon a time. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Some of them are incredibly grand, and it's yeah. just, it's like yeah. a, a window into some former, former world, really. Uh, precisely, and um, in, for, for the setting... For where my characters were going to live, I actually duped a poor, unsuspecting estate agent to show me this historic apartment that was for sale. Uh, I had to pretend I was a prospective purchaser. (laughs) But this apartment was amazing. It used to be a a retreat for for Irish nuns. And uh, uh, it just was really high in the ceiling and they had all these crumbling plasterwork and, and uh, uh, huge rooms and this really sort of slightly sinister atmosphere. So I thought, this is it. This is where they're going to live. What an amazing place. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite fun. And then, um, of course, something had to have happened there before they arrived. So they discovered that actually the former owner had hanged herself in the bedroom and uh, this caused tremendous trouble for them in their interaction between them because there's three characters living together. Uh, uh, the main character, a man who's a structural engineer and his fiance and his sister. So it's really a psychological drama between the three of them. Now, the, the premise for the story is that he, he's come to Gibraltar specifically to build some incredible futuristic building project. Yeah, that's right. Um, a, a land reclamations project, which actually consists of a, a gigantic shelf that comes out from the, from the sheer face of the rock on the uh, Mediterranean side, at the, at the back, back of the rock, more or less where Gorham's Caves is. And um, I- interestingly, the other day, a couple of days ago, we were taken on a tour on, uh, by boat to see that side. And I actually, that was the one thing I hadn't done. I'd seen it on pictures. I'd been around. I'd looked. I'd seen where, where, where it was going to be placed. But seeing it from a boat was quite interesting because I thought, yeah, it, it, it would work here. <laughs> Uh, and, and I did consult a couple of um, structural engineers to ask, would it be possible to build a, a gigantic cantilevered shelf on that rock face? And they said, mm, maybe, it's a good point. <laughs> maybe it could be done. Maybe you've given somebody an idea yeah, then. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we'll see this in the future. <laughs> so has Gibraltar featured in any of your other novels? No. It was the first time I'd been in Gibraltar when, when this happened. And uh, all my novels, well, I say all my novels, there are five to date, uh, are set in completely different places. In the Arctic, Canadian Arctic, in, in um, Tibet, in India, in 
Florida, <laughs> in northern Spain, and in, in Wales. So, you know, lots of different places. So quite a wide mix. You're, you're very well-travelled yourself, though, aren't you? Yeah, I've lived in quite a few different countries, and um, I've got several nationalities to my name. <laughs> That's always useful. <laughs> uh, yes, it can be. It's a bit confusing, too. <laughs> so what's your yeah. next project going to be? Um, well, I have... Um, I have an, always an ongoing project, which is actually not literary, it's artistic. I own a, um, a public sculpture garden, sculpture park in Andalusia, and I am also a sculptor, so I, uh, uh, and I've um, managed to get about 30 different sculptors to come and be sculptors in residence and build sculptures in, in this park. So that's very popular and takes up a lot of my time. But as far as writing is concerned... I do have a psychological thriller on the go. I'm just starting it, actually, and it has to do basically with, uh, just to give you a hint, it has to do with organ transplants. Mm. <laughs> I shouldn't say very much more than that, because it would be giving away the plot. <laughs> That's a nice tease. <laughs> and how has your, your time been in Gibraltar? Oh, it's been amazing. I've so enjoyed meeting all the other writers, and there's such a wide uh, diversity of literature you know you could you could hardly sort of group them together in uh, as one group because i mean there's historic there's um, there's fiction there's children's fiction uh, uh war stories and some of them have been quite emotional and uh, of course i really enjoyed the last but one yesterday Diana Moran. I don't know if you're old enough to know who she I is. I remember <laughs> her being on the telly, the Green yeah. Goddess. Yes. Yeah, the Green Goddess. Because I, 40 years ago, I used to get up in the morning and <laughs> and we had a nice little chat. And I said, you know, you used to inspire me when I was uh, quite a bit younger. And yeah. she's still quite inspiring. <laughs> it wasn't just the rock itself which featured in books being showcased at the festival. Our furry neighbours, the Barbary macaques, are the stars of a new book called Monkey Tales. It's the product of years of research in Gibraltar by Canadian academics Larry Sawchuk and Leanne Tripp. Their talk was introduced by Gibraltar's Minister for the Environment, Dr John Cortez. There are, for example, um, many theories as to how the macaques originally came through Gibraltar. Like, for example, this uh, magical cave that uh, <laughs> opened at Lower St. Michael's Cave across the strait and opened no geological that's impossible, but people actually believed that once upon a time. Um, there are other more plausible uh, suggestions. The one that, that I think is highlighted here, Escape Pets, actually sounds very, very credible. Um, not many people keep pet monkeys now in Gibraltar, they do in Morocco, but that is one of the things that just by reading it you can pick up these little useful bits of information. In their talk we heard stories of Jacko the macaque, another about one which used to break into the Attorney General's wife's bedroom to steal her lipstick, and of course the legend that if the macaques ever leave the rock it will cease to be British. My name is Leanne Tripp. I'm a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Northern British Columbia. I'm Larry Sawchuk. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, um, Department of Anthropology as well. I've been coming here like 40 years. Leanne's been maybe 15 years. And we've done most of our research on human beings, the Gibraltarians. Um, 
or segments of the Jewish population or the Protestant or Catholic population. But in the background of our, our experience, going through all kinds of information, uh, wondering about this and that, there's always been this monkey thing. And, and periodically you'll see in the, uh, in the literature or in the, the documents that we page through a reference to a monkey. And we thought, you know, it would be a good idea if we could write a book about monkeys. And there's been a lot of material written about monkeys, but never one where it's sort of from beginning to, to the end. And what we thought we'd do is do something sort of scientific, but at the same time, something that was a little bit uh, more uh, robust. And that's, that's basically what we were doing. I, I'd also like to add that Larry, when he first started research here in Gibraltar 40 years ago or so, um, he's, he, he, he was looking at with uh, uh, another professor the, the macaques. So he started research. Yeah. on the macaques, looking at the demography, the population structure. Um, so sort of come full circle, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it, it, it was a lot of fun. You know, most of what we do in, in our published publication is very scientific, you know, very statistical, um, very rigorous in the act, purely academic. And this was a, a departure for us. It was an opportunity for us to talk about myths, to talk about uh, how many children uh, a female monkey had and, and, and sort of speculate and sort of go beyond just a word. So it, it was, it's a very enjoyable uh, piece for us to do. Yeah, yeah. So. You, men- you mentioned the myths there. I yes. mean, it was certainly something that I was told about when I first arrived yeah. in Gibraltar, yeah. about the, this secret tunnel that was underneath yes. the Strait yes. of Gibraltar. Yes. Presumably you, demul- you de- debunked that. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yes. So there was another myth uh, that if, when you were a service person, whether it be a uh, a wren at the time, or, or a surface individual, that if you didn't see a monkey, this is World War II, uh, within the first six months of your uh, being stationed here, you would die. Oh. Really? Crikey. Yeah, crikey, yeah. So, <laughs> so basically what, the, what they were saying was that even, even you know, we're not talking about uh, the 17 or 1800s, we're talking about, you know, the 1940s, fairly educated population. And yet they would have this mythology that, boy, if you didn't see one of these little rascals while you're doing a tour of duty. Mind you, I I guess at a time of war, people can become a bit more suspicious, uh, superstitious even. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, and and I think you've you've hit it on on the the nail there. Yeah, absolutely. People do, and that's what Churchill was, you know, keeping the morale up, keeping the number of monkeys up. I mean, you know, why would, you know, someone of of that stature be even concerned about how many monkeys? But there is a, a raven story. Uh, yeah, he, he also was concerned with the number of ravens during the Second World War at the Tower, and the tower, tower London, yeah. London yes. so it was sort of a similar... So he yeah, read, wrote a similar telegram that right. the number had to be six. Right. So they, w- they would keep the population going and all that sort of stuff. So it's not, it, it, again, it was not just peculiar or singular to Gibraltar. It was sort of whatever the war effort required he would make that kind of gesture. So, yeah, it's, it's, and we've learned a lot. I mean, I think um, we've gone through the literature from the 1700s and perhaps even earlier to, you know, to, to modern day stuff. Uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's a, uh, 
there's so much written about these darn monkeys, you, you can't believe. And what we've tried to do in the book is um, not only talk about the monkeys in a different way, but, but also reference. So if, if, if you look at the back of our book, for example, it's very, very useful in terms of uh, if anybody really wants to follow through and say, gee, I would like to know a little bit more about this, you can go to this section and, and, and find sources of information. And that took us a lot of, uh, so somebody could quickly do, uh, you know, locate uh, a specific article. So that, I think, is a, a really good service. So. What would you say was your, your favorite little tidbit that you've picked up in, in all these years of research? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a hard one to say. I think the stories, the stories that you hear and, and we did touch on today were the complaints that um, some of the civilians had um, about and the exaggerations, I think, at times, you know, about the number of macaques that kept coming into the garden and raiding their their fruit trees, that sort of thing, and and the back and forth between uh, with the police and 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 the the, the complainer, um, and there were some other stories about. Uh, I think there's one in particular of a macaque that attacked a girl, and then he had to go to court, and he was sent- sentenced. And there's a little, you know, description of him being holding hands with the uh, the ape keeper at the time, and um, you know, h- hanging his head in shame, that sort of thing. And then he was sentenced to, I think, he was caged for some time yeah, until to, to impart these yeah, human-like qualities. Qualities, on yeah. So like, those stories, I think, I, I found um, to be quite fascinating and in, intriguing that um, you know at least someone was thinking about the macaques in, in that regard and you know there there was I guess some pity empathy um, um, but yeah so the, the, I think it was the stories for me that, yeah I mean there's a little bit of science I mean one of the things that sort of jumped out at me was in 1856 uh, you know I was ta- talking about you know keeping the race the species alive so they were bringing over the monkeys. But equally important, there was a reference to the fact that somebody at the top of the rock, a military man, would have a book, and it was called the Monkey Book. So you can you imagine going back to 1856, and somebody was keeping track of the monkeys coming and going and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. called the Monkey Book. It's incredible. You know, beautiful. I, I can't imagine the imagery of somebody just copying down, saw three monkeys and, and whatever have you. So, yeah, just a beautiful story. And I wish we could find a monkey book. But, mm, yeah. 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 So. so if anybody's out there and they know the whereabouts well, of the monkey yeah. book, you, yeah. you want to know. Oh, oh I'd like to sure. know, yes, yes, for sure. Yes. So, again, you know, if this is, um, I don't know who your audience is, but if there, anybody has any monkey tales that they want to send forward, yeah, look us up. You heard it here first. If you know anything about the whereabouts of the monkey book or any other tales about our furry neighbours, please do get in touch. That's it for this episode of Gibraltar Stories from the Jabunko Gibraltar International Literary Festival. Next week, you'll hear from just one writer, Richard Hamilton, who came to speak about his latest book, Tangier, From the Romans to the Rolling Stones. 
we had a great chat about his book and his experience of researching it, and I ended up with so much material it made sense to let you hear it all. Did you know that en route to Tangier, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones came to Gibraltar and played some avant-garde music to the apes while under the influence? Well, that and other interesting stories about Tangier will be coming your way next Friday. If you'd like to find out more about the annual Gibraltar International Literary Festival, you can find a link to the festival website in the show notes for this episode. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to this episode and for taking an interest in Gibraltar stories. If you enjoyed the podcast and could find the time to leave a review on your chosen podcast provider or share it on social media, I'd be extremely grateful as it'll help other people find the podcast more easily in future. You can listen back to any of the previous episodes on GibraltarStories.com as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. And if you have a Gibraltar story that you'd like to share, please get in touch with me through Facebook, Instagram or Twitter or through the Gibraltar Stories website. Gibraltar Stories is presented, produced and edited by me, Lindsay Weston. Until next time, goodbye for now and thank you very much for listening.